My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, March 20th, 2013. We will be doing our light edition today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result, we do the corrective work. Now, part of our ongoing way in which we help you learn discernment is by, well, providing you with good, sound theological lectures, and we do that once a week in our light edition. It, from time to time, I move the day. It just depends on uh, my study schedule, but today, uh, like we have been doing in the past, it's uh, it's today on Wednesday, and we're going to be wrapping up uh, the Dr. Sinclair Ferguson's uh, series of lectures on uh, the man of heaven. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, part three of the man of heaven. Well, let's turn again and read in Hebrews chapter two. And let me read there the significant verses that we will touch on again today. Hebrews chapter two, verse 10 In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of one. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, 
I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We've been trying to look together, although with some imbalance, at a series of six propositions about our Lord Jesus as the second man and the last Adam that in one way or another are all derivable from this marvelous passage in Hebrews chapter 2, which is but a cross-section of the wonderful way in which the Bible operates with this glorious theme. And we have already seen that as the Lord, the man of heaven, comes, he comes, first of all, to fulfill Adam's role, secondly, to assume Adam's nature, thirdly, to relive Adam's life, in order that, fourthly, which we scarcely touched on this morning, he might atone for Adam's sin. And now we come to propositions, axioms five and six. He comes in order that, number five, he might overcome Adam's enemy, and number six, that he might complete Adam's calling. He comes in order to overcome Adam's enemy. And we had a hint, a flavor of this in our morning study as we thought together about the way in which our Lord Jesus Christ, throughout the whole course of his ministry, certainly from baptism and temptations, through the farewell discourse into the Garden of Gethsemane, right through to the cross, is constantly advancing, as it were, pushing back the frontiers of the prince of this world in order to regain for the glory of God and for the blessing of man the territory that had been lost by Adam's sinfulness. But I think it's important for us to notice just how strategic a principle this is in our whole understanding of the gospel and of the work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus' resistance to the temptations of the evil one are not simply so that he can get on with the real business of his ministry. There is too much underlining in the New Testament of the principle that this is the real business of his ministry that we cannot understand the work of Christ generally, nor particularly his work as the second man and last Adam, without recognizing that precisely what he has come into the world to do is to overcome the powers of darkness and in the process to defeat Satan himself. And indeed here in Hebrews chapter 2, that principle is stated in a programmatic fashion. This is essential, central to Jesus' strategy. This is, one might say, the reason He came. He came, verse 14, to share our humanity so that by His death He might destroy, render powerless, paralyze Him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, 
free us from His clutches, now bring us into the privilege of a life in which, fearing God, we have nothing left to fear. And we have this great future glory of verse 10, that will we be brought together as brothers and sisters into the glorious presence of God. And as a matter of fact, that is not only a programmatic statement of Hebrews chapter 2, it is a principal ground motif of the whole of the Bible. The promise to which we alluded the other day in Genesis 3.15 sets up for us the whole program of redemptive history, the whole purposes of God, and focuses, does Genesis 3.15, interestingly, not on the justification of the unrighteous, but on the conquest of the powers of darkness in order that there may within that context take place the justification of the unrighteous. The first promise of the gospel that becomes the backbone of all redemptive revelation in the Old and New Testaments is a promise of salvation that fundamentally involves deliverance, freedom, exodus from the prince of this world. And so the whole of redemptive history has in view the coming one, the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent, during which process his own heel will be crushed. And I think it's very important for us to understand that this is so, if for no other reason than this. There is a book I confess I've never read it and I don't possess it, but I know its title, like many other books, called When You're Reading the Bible or When You're Studying the Bible, Look for Jesus. But what Genesis 3.15 teaches us by way of analogy, by way of parallel with that is, when you're reading the Bible, you've also got to look for Satan. Because the Bible's view of what Jesus is coming into the world to do is to destroy the works of the devil, to render him powerless. And what he does climactically, as we'll see in his incarnation and consummately in his return, is the very thing that he has been doing proleptically throughout all ages, so that the whole story of the Bible is the story of the way in which the seed of the serpent seeks to destroy the woman and abort the seed. And by contrast, the way in which Almighty God in the process of redemptive history is preserving the seed of the woman in order that the great seed of the woman may crush the head of the serpent. And it's that fundamental antithesis which is not simply an antithesis between the good and the bad, or even between the wise and the foolish, which are both true biblical antitheses. It's this ultimate antithesis between the powers of darkness, the power of God, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God, the city of God, and the city of man. All of it is earthed in this fundamental ground motif that the whole universe is caught up in a cosmic conflict between the Creator of all things 
and the powers of darkness. And into that conflict, we have been caught up. And as God works out His purposes, as year succeeds to year, the story of the anticipation of our Lord Jesus Christ is always a story of the way in which He is defending His people, defending the seed of the woman, the seed of the believing Eve, now covered in the garments of the sacrifice God has provided, defending the seed of the woman against the incursions of the serpent until the day comes when the seed of the woman will bruise and crush and destroy the serpent's head. And it's very interesting, I think, for us to gather into that and be conscious of the way in which so much of the Old Testament Scriptures hang into this. Take what some people still regard as the most primitive story after the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, the story of Job, with its vivid portrayal of exactly this principle. Here is a man who belongs to the city of God, and the serpent seeks to destroy the true seed of the woman. In Job's case, it's experienced in extraordinarily subtle ways. But, you know, in a way, it comes to a kind of consummation in what he says in chapter 16, where for a moment, interestingly, Job confuses the identity of Satan with the identity of God. And he begins to address God. This is the whole problem. He doesn't know where this is coming from. He begins to address God as though God himself were Satan. He says, if I speak, my pain is not relieved. Surely, O God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You have bound me. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me, tears me in his anger, gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. God has turned me over to evil men, made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys, spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me, rushes at me like a warrior. And if you were present at the drama of Job, you would be standing up in your seat saying, Oh, no, 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 Job. And then he cries out, Oh, earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. And there's this little moment of breakthrough into the deepest mystery of all Old Testament revelation that what he is actually experiencing as he reaches out towards the prospect of having an advocate intercessor, that all that he's been experiencing has come from the pit of hell, and it has so nearly destroyed the seed of the woman that he has been driven, as Calvin says, almost to madness by despair, because he has not realized that the serpent is there to destroy him. You get a very different taste of it, of course, in the famous section in the book of Joshua, in Joshua 5, where Joshua is about to take 
the city, and he finds himself in that moment of meditation confronted by this divine visitor with his drawn sword in his hand. And he says, naturally, well, whose side are you on? And I think the response that's given by the visitor is simply to say, that's not really the question. The question is, whose side are you on? For I have come as the captain of the Lord's hosts. And we saw something of that, didn't we, wonderfully this morning in that glorious exposition of Elisha's prayer, open the young man's eyes. And what does he see? He sees that these hosts by which he's surrounded are simply the physical expression of some cosmic conflict in which he is engaged. But the Lord of hosts is present with his hosts to guard the seed of the woman until his purposes are finally consummated in the coming of Jesus Christ. And we could go on and on in this way. But when we come to the pages of the New Testament, the pages of the New Testament then focus the work of Christ on his coming into the world to deal with Satan. To deal with Satan. You remember how he speaks about his own work in those terms. You cannot set free men and women unless you first bind the strong man armed. Similarly, in John 12, 30 to 33, in very telling words, the voice of God comes and gives reassurance about glory to Jesus. Now, says Jesus, the time for judgment on this world has come. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Again, in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And if that were not sufficient, when our Lord Jesus defines his own program in ministry as the divine warrior moving through history, he does that in precisely the same terms of cosmic conflict. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, which will seek to advance against it, will never be able to destroy it. And so there's a line of thought from Genesis 3.15 that takes you eventually, of course, to Revelation chapter 12 and then to the end of the book of Revelation that says when you read the Bible, look for this. Look for the ground motif of the defeat of Adam by the powers of darkness and the defeat of the powers of darkness by the power of God ultimately consummated in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the New Testament, in the way it employs the language of Isaiah 59, God putting on His own armor, the breastplate of righteousness, sees the work of Jesus Christ, our King and Conqueror, as the one who comes riding into this world in order to confront His enemy, to do so on enemy-occupied territory, there to defeat him in the weakness of our flesh, and having defeated him, set free all those who by his power he draws out of his kingdom 
and then as the great Archegos of our salvation, lead that vast company of men and women into the eternal glory of God. So that from start to finish, the Bible is a battle book. From start to finish, redemptive history is a battle history. From start to finish, the Christian life is a battle life. And in all of this, the whole center lies in the way in which in His death, think of Colossians 2.15, in His death, our Lord Jesus Christ overthrows the powers of darkness. You remember those words? Having canceled the written code with its regulations, He forgave us our sins, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, turning, as Calvin says, that Roman gibbet into a triumphal chariot from which he would lead captivity captive and in his ascension give gifts to men. There are many dimensions to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as the center of redemptive history, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave as the beginning of the new order of reality. But close to that center is the way in which a God who is dishonored in man finds honor in a man who overcomes the one who has caused the dishonor and leads many children into God's glory. Now, most of you, perhaps all of you, will be familiar particularly with the kind of discussion you find in Gustav Aulain's book, Christus Victor, that suggests this is the great biblical and ecclesiastical teaching on the atonement of Jesus Christ. The atonement of Jesus Christ, Aulain argues, is not to be understood in terms of penal substitution as, for example, at least hinted at in Anselm and worked out with Luther and the Reformers. The great mystery of the atonement is that Christ overcomes the powers of darkness. And I want to say I have no doubt that that lies very close to the very heart of the gospel, but it does so in a way that rather than deny penal substitution, is actually effected through penal substitution. And when you look at those passages in the New Testament that focus on how the work of Christ on the cross delivers Christ's people from the grip of Satan, without exception within the context of those passages, you will see express statements that in this great conflict victory over Satan, which Christ has won upon the cross, He has won it because on the cross He died a death of penal substitution. In fact, you would only need half an eye to see that, wouldn't you? In Colossians chapter 2, where Paul is speaking about the fact that God has forgiven us our sins and in that context has disarmed the powers and authorities. That is to say, it is by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ 
as the second man and last Adam in my place. That Jesus Christ effects my deliverance from Satan because now pardoned, now counted righteous for Jesus' sake, Satan no longer has hold upon me as one whose sins are forgiven and as one whom God has accepted in His sight as righteous. You find the same thing here in Hebrews chapter 2, where of course in verse 14 and 15 he speaks about our deliverance from the powers of darkness. But then you notice how he emphasizes that the same Christ had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so this is the inner heart of the mystery of the gospel, and it is a great mystery. Here as the seed of the woman faces eyeball to eyeball with the serpent at the beginning of his ministry, I wonder if you've ever noticed how at the beginning of his ministry you get this sense that all of Palestine has been invaded by myriads of demons. You know, we read the New Testament, we see all these demons, we think there must have been demons all over the place. We don't understand this was a special season because this was a special man. Here Jesus goes to Gadara. What does he discover? He discovers a man in whom there is an entire legion of demons. Why? Because the powers of darkness are mustering their dark array against the Son of God. Don't destroy us before the time. What are they trying to do? They know Genesis 3.15. What are they trying to do? At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and you see this in Satan's temptations, Satan is saying, not the cross. By the end of Jesus' ministry, that's ground that Satan has yielded to Jesus. And as you come to the end of Jesus' ministry, it's almost as though you can hear Satan saying, okay, the cross, but in my way and at my time. And that's one of the reasons why as you read the end of the gospel narrative of the Passion, you catch this sense that our Lord Jesus Christ, humiliated, bound, stripped, tired, broken, bloodied, is not bent. Too exhausted to carry His cross to Calvary, asphyxiated by the experience of the crucifixion, He nevertheless cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. And as the king he is, he chooses the moment of his death and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he bows his head as a prince. And he dies. Because he has chosen the way. And he has chosen the time. And neither the efforts of the powers of darkness to hold him back from the cross, nor the efforts of the powers of darkness to rush him to the cross, are ever able to supervene over the sovereign royal power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even as he hangs on the cross with the words of Psalm 22 upon his lips and the strong bulls of Bashan surrounding him. He yields no inch 
for the powers of darkness. And on that little spot on Calvary's hill, he begins to retake possession of the world which God had destined for the first Adam. And in the power of his resurrection, marvelous, isn't it, how how that old patristic principle that in all of the works of God outside of the Godhead, all three persons are operative, how particularly John underlines the words of Jesus, that he has the power to lay down his life. No one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay down my life, and I have the power to take it up again. I'm not even sure I know what that second clause means, but what at least it means is this. That Jesus was not a dead corpse who, in a sense, needed the Father to come to rescue him or the Spirit to come to vindicate him, although both of these things are true. Jesus was so king in death that he chose the moment he would lay down his life and in the mystery of his divine human hypostatic union, he also chose the time when he would rise from the grave. And as God had done in the darkness of the first creation and then in the darkness of the womb of the Virgin Mary, so in the darkness of the garden tomb, the second great stage of God's victory over the powers of darkness would begin. And the one whom Satan had sought to crush in the heel throughout the whole course of his ministry would stand on the chief instrument that has been used in the warfare of God against Satan and Satan against God, and he would stand upon the head of the serpent and without other voice calling, Jesus, come forth. He would rise from the grave, the great and glorious victor. He overcomes Satan as the prophet of God, get behind me. He overcomes Satan as the priest of God who gives his life a ransom for many. He overcomes Satan as the king of God who defeats death and rises again to reclaim his people and to reclaim his territory. And it's that that brings us to the sixth point. Our Lord Jesus Christ fulfills Adam's role, assumes Adam's nature, relives Adam's life, atones for Adam's sin, overcomes Adam's enemy, and completes Adam's calling. Okay, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break, and then we will continue with uh, today's lecture on the uh, third part in the series on the man of heaven. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> 
Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing the Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, the Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of the Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. Spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you're attending one of those shallow churches 
that don't give you in-depth biblical teaching like what you're hearing today. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew. Click on one of them and support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 okay here is the balance of today's lecture by dr sinclair ferguson on the man of heaven here we go hebrews 2 again adam's calling as the psalmist reflects on it is to be one who has been made a little lower than the angels to be one to whom god is his bishop He actually uses the verb episcopio in uh, verse 6, interestingly, if you're an Episcopalian, interestingly. And if you're not, it's interesting to notice that it's God who's the bishop, but that's beside the point. (laughs) You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And you notice these interesting words that the writer of Hebrews somehow senses that that for which Adam was intended, has failed. And so now it cannot be brought back from the past. It must now be consummated in the future. And so he says, it's not to angels he's subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But this man of whom he speaks is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we do see Jesus already crowned with glory and honor. And that's where we are this afternoon. Christ has risen. He has conquered Satan. We do not yet see everything under his feet. We do see some things under his feet, but we don't yet see everything under his feet. So we live in the time when our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit is tramping through world history, putting this world under His feet, seeing the fulfillment of the second psalm, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And that, of course, is where we are. We are in the situation adumbrated in past events in the history of the Old Testament, for example, in the covenant with Abraham, that the nations of the earth would be blessed in him, in the experience of David and particularly Solomon, in the sense that the earth would be full of a sense of God's glory as God's king reigned. But now we begin to see that bursting through Christ's victory into reality in all the world. There is a very interesting statement of Peter's on the day of Pentecost, much, I suspect, neglected, neglected at least by theologians, perhaps not neglected by pastors. But I find it a very illuminating statement. Exodus, I mean, Acts chapter 2, verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. We're familiar with Jesus' reception of the Spirit 
in his conception, his reception of the Spirit in his baptism. But there is another reception of the Spirit which takes place, Peter says, when our Lord ascends in power in the cloud of Shekinah glory into the presence of God, and the first part of the conversation goes something like this. Father, You promised me the nations for my inheritance. You promised me that all that Adam was destined for but lost, You would recover through my life and death and resurrection and ascension. But there is one thing lacking. Give me for them the privilege of sending upon them the same Holy Spirit You sent upon me who has accompanied me throughout the whole course of my ministry. Dear Father, in order that our bond together may come to its glorious consummation, may they have the Spirit You gave to me. And now Pentecost is the external exegesis of that prayer of Jesus. It is the external coronation sign to the world that Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord, and the Spirit is poured out upon all flesh. And from the day of Pentecost onwards, this great work of our Lord Jesus Christ through the outpouring of the Spirit of reclaiming the territory that Adam has lost for the glory of God continues to the end of the age. And the grand reversal begun in Christ continues through history until it is consummated in glory. And that, of course, is where we began. We began with Adam as the image of God, the expression of the glory of God, exchanging the glory of God for images, sinning and falling short of the glory of God. And then in Jesus Christ, the one in whom we have seen God's glory, in whose face we see shining the glory of the blessed God gloriously restored. The one who by His Spirit begins even now to work glory into us, at least first of all the prospect of it, so that justified by faith we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And then, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being changed from the present degree of glory into some future degree of glory. This takes place, he says in chapter 4, through the sufferings. These light afflictions are working for us, an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. But this awaits the consummation of the great day when our Lord Jesus Christ will appear from heaven, as Paul says in Philippians 3.20. And on that day, by the power that works within us, He will transform these bodies of lowliness to be like His body of glory. And then what was lost in the fall in Adam will finally be consummated in Jesus Christ. And it's this ultimately that takes us really back to where we started in 1 Corinthians 15. The man of the dust fell into the dust. The man of glory brings his people to glory. The man of the earth destroys the earth. The man of heaven brings us to God. But as Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15, 
Paul, he understands that there is an orderliness to God's working. This, he says, takes place in a certain divine order. Number one, Christ is raised as the first fruits of those who have slept. And raised, as he says, verse 45, as life-giving spirit, that he may breathe that same resurrection power into his people as he breathed upon his disciples the day of his resurrection. And according to that order, Christ, having been raised from the dead, never to die again, will come again in glory and raise believers from the dead and transform those who are living. And the result will be that the whole of creation will be transformed. He works with the same idea in more detail in Romans 8, you remember, where he recognizes that the adoption of the sons of God, the eschatological adoption of the sons of God will be the trigger mechanism that will be used to bring the whole creation to share in the liberty of the glory of the children of God. He says the whole creation, my generation, you remember J.B. Phillips' wonderful rendering, the whole creation, he says, is standing on tiptoe, waiting for the sons of God to come into their own. And as they come into their own in the resurrection and share in the final harvest, their transformation into glory, that is the great destiny that God had in view, will trigger the restoration of the whole groaning creation so that it too will share in the liberty of the glory of the children of God, the prophecies of the Old Testament, the desert blossoming as a rose. They really will come true. And that which was intended to be Adam's destiny will be our destiny in Jesus Christ. And the great omega point will be reached says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then the end will come, the omega point will be reached. When he, that is Christ, hands over the kingdom, that's Genesis 1, 26 to 28 language, all authority, dominion, he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, because he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And on that day he will say, Hebrews 2.13, Here am I, and the children you have given me. And when he has done this, 1 Corinthians 15.28, then the Son Himself will be made subject to Him who put everything under Him so that God may be all in all. Now, that's not a piece of subordinationism. That's a piece of Adam Christology. What that verse means is that the Son 
has become the second man and the last Adam in order to undo what Adam did, in order to do what Adam failed to do, in order to fulfill the destiny to which Adam was called. And so, as it were, as he stands with the whole of the regenerated creation and all the people of God surrounding him and leads us before the throne of his Father, as the second man and the last Adam, and says, here am I and the children you have given me. He will bring his glory work to consummation by doing what Adam refused to do in the Garden of Eden. And bowing his head before the Father and saying, on behalf of all these I bring to you, I confess you all in all. And there is an application. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Oh, my brothers and sisters, when you see this is the destiny of the people of God, then nothing will ever be in vain. Ever. So let us go encouraged by the knowledge not only that He will come to do this, but that He has already begun. Father, we thank You that You have guarded us in these days, that You have given to us a measure of our heart's desire, that You have kept us united in the Holy Spirit, that You have guarded us from grievous sin, that You have fed us by Your Word and Spirit, and that we are able to say how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in heavenly unity. And we pray now that you will keep us faithful for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all your sins. Amen.